At Jason Young's second trial for the murder of his wife, Michelle, everyone's cards were on the table. He'd been held responsible for Michelle's death at a civil trial, and the jury was hung at his first criminal trial. The information was all out there now. Would the prosecution do a better job this time around? Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Join me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening, I believe that you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. And there are so many ways that you can easily step into this role and make a profound difference in someone's life. This is season four, episode 26. This week, we're gonna wrap up our three-part series on the book, Murder on Birchleaf Drive, the true story of the Michelle Young murder case. Once again, the host of the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast, my friend Jill McCracken, is going to join us with more fascinating takes on this case. So let's dive right into our story at the intersection of faith and true crime. In last week's episode, we talked about the first attempt by prosecutors to get justice for Michelle Young and her loved ones. It didn't go exactly as planned because they really didn't plan so well. Preparation is so important for trials, and they simply weren't prepared for the possibility that Jason would testify. This time they were. They had a different prosecutor who would put together a much better trial strategy. This is one of those unlovely truths of the true crime world that a poor performance by an attorney can completely derail a case like almost happened here. Prosecutors in this second trial had the added advantage of being able to talk to the jurors from that first criminal trial. New arguments were developed from the information that prosecutors gathered, and additional witnesses would be called this time to shore up areas of testimony that jurors had told them felt weak or unconvincing. Now, the defense had an advantage of their own. Jason was now out on bail, so they could spend more time with him preparing their new arguments. When it came time for opening arguments, prosecutors focused more attention on Jason's affairs. They talked about the civil suit that Jason refused to respond to, resulting in a default judgment that named him Michelle's killer. It also resulted in him giving up custody of Cassidy rather than answer questions about his possible role in Michelle's death. The defense tried to attack the forensic evidence in their opening argument. They suggested that the fact that it took three years for police to charge him was evidence that Jason was surely innocent. I'm just not sure how they made that leap. But it seems to me that this was the beginning of them grasping at straws. Jason's attorneys also argued that his giving up custody of Cassidy didn't mean anything because Jason thought that once the trial was over, he could simply get her back. Jason was a lot of things, but stupid was not one of them. I do not buy this argument at all. The first witness to get on the stand and testify was Michelle's sister, Meredith. She spent much more time testifying than she had in the first trial because prosecutors needed to fill in holes that had left the first jury unconvinced of Jason's guilt. Employees from the hotel returned to testify again, and so did Michelle's friend Shelley and the gas station convenience store clerk. Once again, the medical examiner took the stand to explain Michelle's injuries to the jury. It's still shocking to hear that she had more than 30 wounds on her face and her head. Michelle's mother testified again, and she could not hide her contempt for Jason. 
a new witness for the prosecution in this second trial, was a co-worker of Michelle's, who told the jury that when Michelle became pregnant with her son, she confided that Jason was less than thrilled. Another new witness was a woman who had been a friend of Michelle's since high school, and she testified that when Michelle found out she was pregnant with Cassidy, Jason had wanted her to get an abortion and told her that if she didn't, he would resent her for the rest of her life. Maybe he had never let go of that feeling. Knowing who to trust and when to trust and in what situations to trust is so crucial. And that's why I wrote my soon-to-be-released book, In God We Trust, Everyone Else Gets a Background Check. There were red flags in Jason's life. And if people had checked those out and paid more attention to them, the outcome of our story might have been a lot different. And so if you have trouble saying no to people, or if you feel like you trust people maybe a little too quickly, little too freely, I hope you'll grab a copy of my book or one to share with someone who you think could really benefit from the practical tips and the biblical wisdom that I have packed into each page. So remember, be on the lookout for the release of In God We Trust, Everyone Else Gets a Background Check. Crime scene techs returned to testify about the scene of Michelle's murder. One told about finding something in Jason's luggage that we'll just say a man with a pregnant wife wouldn't need at that time. And that brought up testimony about Jason's numerous affairs. Some of these women testified how different Jason was when he drank, which he did frequently and to excess. They described violent fights, and one woman even said that during a fight she had had with Jason, when she looked into his eyes, they were just completely empty. The jury was allowed to watch a video recording of Jason's testimony from his first trial. Cell phone records contradicted some of Jason's testimony, as did some video from the hotel that he had checked into that night. Prosecutors went into much greater detail about the insurance policy on Michelle's life. The one that I told you I felt was very excessive. It was for $2 million, and it had an additional payment of $2 million if Michelle died and her death did not result from natural causes. Now, you might remember from last week's episode, the prosecutors in that first trial didn't even mention that Jason had been found responsible for Michelle's death in a civil trial. They did not make that mistake this time around. But remember this point because it will be crucial later on. After calling two more witnesses, the prosecution rested. Many of the same witnesses from the first trial who had made up the defense's case testified again, with one notable exception. This time, Jason did not testify in his own defense. When his attorneys gave their closing arguments, they focused very heavily on the forensic evidence that they said did not conclusively link Jason to Michelle's murder. They also emphasized their belief that Jason simply wouldn't have had time to get from his hotel back home, kill Michelle, and then return to the hotel. They talked about a lot of things that I found really pretty irrelevant, but it seemed to be all they had. Now, when prosecutors gave their closing arguments, they described Jason as a selfish and immature man who just really didn't want to be married anymore. He didn't want to hear his mother-in-law point out his flaws or give up any of his mistresses. They talked about all of the circumstances and asked jurors to use their common sense to decide that if all together it pointed to anybody other than Jason. They painted him as a manipulator and begged jurors not to be manipulated by his defenders. Jurors took their time deliberating. They wanted to review several pieces of evidence. 
They took a break over the weekend, which I'm sure just seemed like an eternity to everybody waiting on a verdict. Once they resumed deliberations, they just kept deliberating and deliberating, and people began to fear that this jury would be hung like the first one. But they did reach a verdict. Jason was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Michelle Fisher Young. As the laws of North Carolina required, Jason was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Of course, like everyone who's been convicted, Jason appealed and actually was granted a third trial based on improperly admitted evidence. I told you to remember when we talked about Jason being named in a civil trial as Michelle Slayer and that information being put in front of this jury. That was the point of law that they appealed on. Now, the prosecutors were able to appeal that decision and they must have made a better argument because after quite a bit of legal back and forth, Jason's conviction was upheld. Michelle finally got justice, but there's always a ripple effect. Little Cassidy has to grow up without her mother and deal with the knowledge that she's missing her mother because of her father. We're so lucky to have Jill McCracken back this week. So let's continue our deep dive into this case. Let's talk about the third trial now. Yes. So that second trial, as we mentioned, didn't go so well. Prosecution maybe caught a little flat-footed. And, and the defense attorneys, I think, did a good job with what they had to work with. But now everybody's cards are on the table. Now everybody knows what the other side is going to be arguing, what position they're going to be taking on different things. And I think that that really helped the prosecutors more than it did the defense, which I think usually is the other way around. Oh, very much so. That testimony could be used as evidence, which I wasn't sure when I was reading. I was like, can they use that? You know, testimony in another trial, if you're trying it again, well, the answer is yes, they can, which was fantastic. He did not testify at the second trial, which is probably a good decision. A fine but, good decision on his part. <laughs> yes, he did make one, but the prosecution was able to use everything that he said, and there were inconsistencies, definitely. I know you'll eat this up too, because mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about evidence before, and the prosecution did a much better job of introducing and explaining the electronic, as you said, breadcrumb trail mm -hmm. that he left. I think people need to realize, you know, if, if you have someone that investigators are looking into something, make sure that they are checking not only cell phone records, but any kind of closed circuit cameras that might be in the area. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, he got tripped up quite a bit on his the history from his browser of what he had been searching <laughs> for about knockout punches and yeah, and blunt force trauma to the brain. Yeah, because I you know research that all the time, referring to my husband and my wife. What? Well, and like, and I'm <laughs> one of those people. It annoys my husband so much. We'll be watching a show, or or I will, and he'll be kind of in the background, and I'll say, "When are you going to learn to leave your cell phone at home?" <laughs> don't, don't go commit these crimes and take your cell phone with you. I've worked cases where we used cell phone evidence not only to tie, you know, person A speaking to person B when maybe they denied knowing them or denied speaking with them. We can also use that to see where you are. I'm sure most of you have seen that on forensic files or, or, or something else similar to that. 
but we can triangulate. Cell where- phones are are phenomenal. Serial killer Israel Keys, mm. when he he murdered Samantha Koenig up in Alaska. It's a long story of how he gets caught, but his cell phone would go blank. He would turn it off and it would go blank when he was committing a heinous crime like this. And the rest of the time, he's driving around town. He's there. He's there. You can ping all over the place. The blank spots became evidence because they could track where the signals were dead. And that's when he was doing a bad thing. Authorities hinted about that in mm-hmm. the Idaho murders, too, uh-huh. with Brian Koberger, that, that he had those blank spots where he turned things off. And there again, that brings up what we've mentioned before with circumstantial evidence. Yes. Yes. You turning your phone off is not evidence that you killed someone. But if it so coincidentally falls right when something was happening, when you might not want to be tracked and you're savvy enough to know that that, that your cell phone is going to be locatable. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit more for anybody who maybe might get, get pulled to be on a jury. Mm-hmm. Because one thing I think that we have lost a real clear understanding of is the whole concept of reasonable doubt. We want bloody fingerprints. Yes. We want DNA. We want a camera showing you actually committing the crime, not, a, not just being in the vicinity. And we had a discussion about the civil trial. Definitely has a different standard of proof. It's got the preponderance of evidence versus beyond a reasonable doubt. But do you think sometimes juries are actually wanting to the exclusion of any doubt? Yes. I think it's that CSI effect Mm -hmm. because in 45 minutes, they collect all of this evidence and they do the big reveal of the lab comes to the right at the lab, you know, 52 minutes in the lab comes out with the lab report and solves the crime and they get the bad guy. And that is just not reality. We have so many wonderful techniques now and forensics has gotten really good, but it doesn't suspend the use of the most important tool which is our brains. Reasonable doubt does not mean there is zero doubt. Right. We are never going to know exactly what happened in that bedroom, when he came in, where he stood, but you don't need all of that. You just need to place him at the crime scene. You need maybe a weapon or you know it was some kind of blunt object and you put together where his cell phone was, where it went dark. Part of the evidence there was that the video cameras in the hotel were tampered with, which would conceal a person leaving the hotel, something that, oh no, had only happened on the night of November 2nd and November 3rd in that morning. That had never happened before. The one hotel that he happened to be staying in and had that window of opportunity to drive home and do this. You can add one and one is two. You can get to four and skip over three and know the numbers are taking you to 10. If you have someone who's not talking and hasn't confessed, you have to to use your brain and think, why, why would those hotel cameras have that problem that night and never before? Yes, there are coincidences in this world, but that's a pretty big coincidence. Stacked on top of the others. Mm-hmm. As far as, you know, the, the search history on his computer. And the the daughter being cleaned up, you know, who else would do that? 
she has supposedly an intruder on a night that he's away. Who would have who would have known that? Who would yes, because the intruder was just waiting for him to drive off. Right. And the intruder cared so much about their daughter. And just to make sure she was okay, we're gonna give her, you know, medication so she'll sleep until someone finds her. Because burglars, you know, do that all the time. It, you have to stop. What is reasonable? What is logical? What makes sense? And you made an they, excellent point about really looking at things with a very critical eye, using our common sense. Because one thing in the second trial that the defense made a big, big deal out of was that there had been a hair collected from the crime scene. I think it was caught on a picture frame. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't hers and it wasn't Jason's. Correct. And so, oh my goodness, this has to be the perpetrators. Well, this was a couple that was known to entertain people Mm -hmm. in and out of the house constantly. And so you have to be able to differentiate and say, does that really pertain to this situation? Or is it, you know, what we would call a red herring? It's just something that may never be explainable, but just because we can't explain it, doesn't mean we have to discount everything else that's been presented. Now, I would probably be a defense attorney's worst nightmare. (laughs) But when you have people over to visit, where do you put their coats? Exactly. In your bedroom, laying on the bed. On the bed, laying on the bed. And what do you have on your collar, on your coat? Hair that has been shed from my head. I, I mean, I'm not making up crazy nonsense, but that is a very, very common scenario, I think, for... Most people who do not have a giant closet in their foyer that happens to be empty. I mean, you chuck it on the bed and you go in, you're going through, rifling through it, trying to find your coat. You pull it out, off you go. You know, that to me didn't seem like a big thing. But again, the defense attorney is not going to want me on the jury. I understand that because that to me was like, so? I I actually wrote in the margins, so what? Yes. But you're right. You know, they're going to work with what they've got. So I, I do understand that. But- We get this idea that a trial is a search for truth. Mm -hmm. Everybody is just simply searching for the truth. And that is not so. It would be nice if that's what everybody was doing. But the defense attorney is looking to create reasonable doubt. That's their job. And if they can throw something in and make it seem like it is just a question that if we can't answer this, you know, if this doesn't fit, you must acquit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So what would you say, because you've got more of a scientific background than I do, what would you say we need to focus on if we're on a jury or if we're just looking at a case that we're interested in? What kind of things do we focus on and what kind of things do we realize that may just be a question that never gets answered and that's okay? That's a tough question because it does depend on the trial. But in looking at this case... You have a history where he has been violent, pulled off the rings. He has had multiple affairs. A week before, this to me was very, very critically important. A week before the murder, he is emailing an ex-girlfriend from years ago that he shouldn't have let her go. She is the love of his life. And the other woman that he had had an affair with earlier. And another one. I mean, there's girlfriends all over the place. While he testifies under oath that he was working on his marriage and he's on the phone with girlfriend 
on his the night he's going out to dinner with his wife. These things don't make sense because you're not running around confessing your love to other women at the same time you're working on your marriage. True. That's the framing. Now you put the puzzle pieces into the picture frame and you go from there. I've heard it explained that the defense and the prosecution try to tell the best story, not necessarily the truth, but the best story. And it is then presented to the jury. For me, it is really about common sense. What rings true? I did serve on a civil case back in New Jersey, and then I was on grand jury every Tuesday for 18 weeks. And you get a real sense of you know how the evidence is, is presented. A, a jury trial can be very tedious and really annoying. And there's really, really terrible parts when it comes down to the medical stuff, because it can be horribly boring. But you have this obligation to listen to the factual pieces, collect that puzzle. And if the defense tells you it's an apple and all the pieces are red, well, then it's probably an apple. But if they're all yellow, maybe it's a lemon and the prosecution's right. That's the way I approached it. Give me the facts. I like that. That's a very common sense approach. And you know, I think it, you have to. And it circles back around, I think, to where we started. Mm-hmm. Whether you're talking about uh, a loved one, a spouse, whatever kind of relationship, or you're talking about being on a jury and evaluating evidence of what somebody's done. When someone tells you who they are, believe them. And the prosecution yes. was able to use his actions to tell the jury exactly who he was. And in the second trial, they believed it. It, The second trial was clearer. Mm -hmm. They connected the dots far more efficiently. This was interesting too. They used the civil judgment, Mm -hmm. you know, saying that he had been declared the the killer of Michelle. That was part of the appeal because of course he gets convicted, Mm -hmm. but then he appeals. And his appeal was, the, the court trial was overturned. But the section of the law was, 1149. And yes, a lot of times you cannot use civil judgments in a criminal case unless, unless you're proving new information, unless you are supporting or tearing down the alibi, unless, you know, it, it's not about, believe it or not, it sounds weird, but it wasn't about him being the slayer of Michelle. It was about him not fighting for custody, his behavior around that. You know, it wasn't because he, he never said anything, mm-hmm. but him not saying anything is behavior. Okay. And, and then it was it was overturned and the North Carolina Supreme Court says, no, 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 no third trial. He's done. No, no, this is this is fine. And then it goes back to the Court of Appeals who agreed with the Supreme Court when they had to rethink it in that context. It wasn't so much the slaying, but his behavior in that situation. And that was absolutely genius. I had no idea how that worked. And that's fascinating to me. Well, and again, it came right back to they allowed how he handled himself against that allegation. Yes. To speak to who he was. Yes, exactly. And so I I think that is fabulous. Yeah, there's almost always a way around something. If you want to try to get some some information in court, it just all depends on how you present it and what you're presenting it to prove. 
Exactly. They weren't trying to prove the fact that he was Michelle's killer by that. Correct. They were showing his character. And his character was not pretty. Too many red flags. Yes. Mm-hmm. Look for those red flags, folks. And if if you can see them where someone else can't, have that hard conversation. If you really care, you should have that hard conversation. Yep. You don't have to attack someone when you're doing it, but you do have to be honest. Well, I knew this would be a fascinating conversation with you. I love your insights into human behavior. I love your very methodical approach to evidence evaluation. So thank thank you. you. Thank you for sharing. Well, thank you. You certainly made me think of things that had not occurred to me. And so thank you for that. Oh, and vice versa. Thank you so much for coming up with this book, for this case. And I think so much is revealed as you walk through this and the different steps. It's uh, You gave me a lot to think about as well. Believe me. Well, if you are a regular listener to The Unlovely Truth and you're hearing this audio, make sure you check out the Murder Shelf Book Club. And if you're a regular listener of Jill's, I hope you'll join me at The Unlovely Truth sometime. We have different approaches, but I think we kind of get to the same place on a lot of things. I think so, too. Yeah. It's uh, you're, you're good, girl. You are good at what you do. And, you and I like as, hanging around with the competent people. It's it's important. It is. I, I won't name names or name podcasts, but I know some of them are not nearly as interested in education and justice as they are as in sensationalism. And I and so respect. appreciate how you how you avoid that. And respect. That is so critically important respecting the the story, the people involved in it. And uh, I that, that is a mantra mm. to me. Mm-hmm. Well, stories are how we're wired to learn. So thank you for joining me with this story and uh, helping us all learn some new stuff. Thanks, Lori. The Bible passage that I want us to take a look at this week may seem a little off the mark at first, but hang with me. It really is so relevant. It's from the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes, too, for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. I wanted to look into this passage this week because I dogged prosecutors pretty hard last week for not being prepared for the possibility that Jason might testify at his murder trial. This time, though, justice was finally served. It is certainly not always easy to get. God wants us to give respect to those in authority, 
even when we might not think they're doing a good job or what they're supposed to be doing. They're human just like we are, and they do make mistakes. Sometimes they even make terrible decisions. And that's why it's so important for us to support people in public office who are doing things right, who are showing good character and a strong work ethic. And remember that when you're deciding who to vote for. And this is just as important. When we have information that authorities need to be able to do their jobs, we need to be honest and forthcoming. So I hope that this week we can all find a way to support our public servants who are doing their very best. I hope we can find ways to bless them if it's in our power to do so, because if they don't do their jobs, victims and their families just would not find justice. And I also want to say that if you know anyone like Michelle who cannot see the danger that they are in, I hope that you will lovingly share your concerns with them and offer them whatever assistance you can. This is why I share these stories. Because even if you think that something like this could never happen to you, or that you couldn't have a serious safety issue in your neighborhood, at your church, or your workplace, you need to be ready just in case. I hope that in listening to the podcast, reading my books, and looking into my soon-to-be-available church safety training resources, you can share what you learn with folks that you know so we can all be as prepared as we can possibly be. If you liked this episode, be sure to look at the archive and check out some earlier ones. There have been so many great insights and safety tips and just flat out wisdom shared by my wonderful guests that I don't want you to miss a minute of it. You can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, if you'll share this episode with them. That is the best way for podcasts to grow and all of the information that we have can touch more people's lives. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.